0: Recently, there's been a lot of buzz at Hope College about a talk given by uh, the president, uh, Mr. Matthew Scogin, on the question of, who would Jesus vote for? Who would Jesus vote for in the upcoming election? And believe it or not, the answer is actually in our first reading today where it talks about Cyrus, and and God says to King Cyrus, I have made you you emperor over all these lands, and it was I who raised you up to this this position. So the answer is that on November 3rd, Jesus is going to vote for the winner. Which sounds kind of strange, and that's not the way that uh, Scogan was answering the question, but in a way, it's the answer of scripture. In 2016, Jesus voted for Donald Trump. In 2012, he voted for Barack Obama. 2008, he voted for Barack Obama. Before that, GW, twice. That's who God voted for. And what I mean by, by saying that and what Scripture is doing in talking about Cyrus the Great in, in this way is that all things come under God's providence. All things are in his care. And... And he allows things to happen, sometimes bad things to happen. You know, he allowed Adam and Eve to go forbidden apple picking, even though he told them not to. So God allows, allows things to happen for his own purposes, which is ultimately his glory and our salvation. And so the ones that, that God allows to be in authority, in, uh, in some sense, are are there. With his, with his real permission. Now, what is the purpose of putting there? Well, it, it, it depends on the time. You know, we don't always have an answer for that, and oftentimes we don't see why a certain person is in a position until much later on. You know, sometimes God allows certain people to take leadership um, because people need to be encouraged or inspired or given great moral example or uplifted in some way. Sometimes they just need to be punished for their sins. And that, that is part of the reality, too, that sometimes uh, we get the leaders we deserve and not maybe necessarily the ones that we want. And so this, is, this goes to in a, a Christian sort of view of, of governance, that if God's providence is at work, what does that mean? When well, Romans chapter 13, St. Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So, in the gospel, when Jesus is confronted with this question about paying the temple tax, he says, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. When you read that in light of, of St. Paul, it means that, well, part of God's providence is that, well, Caesar is Caesar. And therefore is, in some sense, charged by God to be a minister of his justice. And, and I think that's sort of the second point that, that earthly authority, even not, not like exclusively Christian authority in, in a Christian kingdom with a Christian head of state, but any kind of governing authority in society has been given a a job by God. It's a crucial point. Just as all parents are given authority and given a job by God. And it's it's a sacred trust. And it applies to all, all government leaders. It applies to all parents, whether or not they're Christian. They have a responsibility to those whom they rule over who are also those whom they serve, actually because they're supposed to be a, a minister of God's justice. And again, St. Paul says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And so I think that that mindset leads, I think, very much in Western culture to talk about government a government job is a public service. That's ultimately, in the best light, that's that's what it is. And that's how it should be uh, approached. It's an instrument of justice. In fact, George Washington said the administration of justice is the firmest pillar of government. That at the end of the day, that is its job. So we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar because Caesar has a job that he's been given by God. And that's a crucial part of the understanding of the the Christian idea of state and and state authority. Now, here's the thing. Justice is a moral issue. It's a moral issue in Greek philosophy. It's a moral issue in Christian theology. You can't can't really talk about a, a state being just without a state being moral. And so I want to give you some some thoughts from the Dominican tradition, of what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say on what, you know, what state authority in a sense looks like. And on the one hand, St. Thomas says the state cannot impose faith. The state cannot impose, in a way, true religion. And the reason and St. Thomas says you, the state can't do that. Not that it shouldn't do that, but that it can't do that. Because when you understand Christianity at its core about as, as God becoming man, you know, that man might become God, and that happening because God actually implants within us faith and hope and love and these, these supernatural realities within us that he freely gives and we must freely accept, when that's your idea of true religion, well you see how it's not something you can impose by force, because it must be freely believed and freely accepted, and the love of God must be freely accepted and freely given back. Just as you would think it it would be silly, you know, to go up to someone and, and try and make them believe that two plus two is five by putting a gun to their head. Now you might convince them to say that two plus two is five. People say a lot of things when you put a gun to their head. But you can't. Like no matter how much they want to believe it, they won't actually be able to, because you can't force people to believe what they don't believe. And so there's no there's no way you can make people Christians through force. That that Christian religion ultimately. Giving God the praise that is his due is a worship in spirit and in truth, as Scripture says. So you can't, you can't force people into it. So that's the first thing I think Thomas would say. The second thing is that there is a way the state has an obligation in a sense to impose justice and therefore to impose a kind of morality on public conduct. Now, oftentimes in American political discourse you hear the phrase, well, you, you know, you can't impose your morality on other people. Of course you can. You do it all the time. You know, murder is illegal. Robbing a bank is illegal. You know Stealing some old lady's purse is illegal. Perjury is illegal. Those are all sins, by the way, um, in, in the theological sense. but they're crimes in the civil sense. And we impose them, I think, essentially, because they're wrong. And I think one of the ways we deceive ourselves about this is we, we say, well, we, we outlaw those things because you know they have like, bad economic effects. Sure, you know if people just are allowed to go around killing people. It's, it's going to hurt the GDP. Fair enough. I'm not going to argue about that. You know if you, if you allow people to rob banks with impunity, yeah, that's going to undermine the banking system. It's, it's not going to be good you know, for our corporate bottom line, you know, or the, the household savings rate. Um, that's, that's true enough. But I think there's something kind of degrading about making that, that argument, that we don't allow these things because they have bad economic effects. No, we don't allow them because we're decent people, and those things are really wrong. And you can't have a functional society when people are allowed to do those things. So there has to be some kind of imposition of, of morality. And there's a philosopher uh, from Amherst, who's done a lot of work on, on natural law, and actually he, he's kind of being cheeky when he says it, but he says, in a way, the only thing that the government should impose by law is morality. Because if it's, it's, not, if it's not about morality, leave people alone. You may not like polka dot pants, but who cares? It shouldn't be illegal unless there's, like, it's really a moral problem in society that people are wearing these kinds of pants. Leave them alone. Unless it's a really serious moral issue that interferes with societal functioning, leave it alone. And in fact, St. Thomas says the same thing. You cannot, everything that's a sin cannot become a crime. You have to prioritize. The state can only do so much. If it tries to do everything, it'll probably make things worse. You've got to find out the bare minimum of morality we're going to demand of each other, and we we can successfully impose, and that's it. Making people really good people is the job of the church. That's who is there to, to make men holy, to preach the word, to give the sacraments, to do works of mercy. These are the things that, that get people into heaven. The state is just there to keep society kind of functioning. But we have to realize that that there that behind civil law there should be a moral case. You know, you think of something innocuous as speed, speed zones around schools. You know, you can make an economic argument that running over 10-year-olds at 65 miles an hour is bad for the economy. But really, I think the stronger argument is you should have more respect for human life and your fellow citizens and not go tearing through a school zone at 65 miles an hour. That that's a moral argument and that's the right argument. So why talk about these things? Why talk about the relation of church and state, you know, and what belongs to Caesar? I think ultimately it's because while we have to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, Caesar also has to give to God what belongs to God. That Caesar has obligations to the Almighty. It has to acknowledge the sacredness of its position, the weight of its responsibility. And ultimately, that that means your responsibility and my responsibility as citizens. Because in about two weeks, for 24 hours, we get to be Caesar. Once a year, every two years, once a one day, yeah, once a year, every two years, we get to play Caesar. Caesar gets to pick who governs his territories, and that's what gets to happen in two weeks. And so I think it's important for us to approach November 3rd with the mind of, well, what does it mean, you know, I'm in a republic, I'm a citizen, I have the right to vote. And so how am I, as Caesar, going to give to God what belongs to God? Knowing that the the real work as a Christian happens on the other 364 days in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, really trying to build up the kingdom of God. But one day a year, we get to be Caesar. And we have to think about not voting simply in in personal selfish interests but to really work for the common good. And after we do that, to really spend time praying, praying for those who have been entrusted by God with authority, because they need our prayers, and that happens all the time in Scripture. You know, St. Paul says, pray, pray for government leaders, pray for those in authority. It's a big job. It's a dark world in many ways and we should not expect those in government to be able to do their job and do it well if we are not willing to support them with the best means at our disposal, which is not our vote, but our prayers and our sacrifices. So May God bless our country, may he bless all the voters, as they go to the polls. And may he especially bless those who are entrusted to be ministers of his justice.